Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, welcome everybody back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin Kukaro. And this may or may not be a shorter episode today. This is, um, I debated doing this episode actually for quite some time last couple of weeks. And finally, I just figured I, I need to do it. I need to just get this off my chest and get it done. Um, and this is really about pain medicine. Now, as we talked about in a previous episode, this is my specialty. So I'm an anesthesiologist, you know, trained in Chicago. Then I did a fellowship in pain at the University of Michigan. I was a physician in the military, you know, assistant program director with pain fellowship there. And I learned this stuff. Okay. I went through a great fellowship program. I would say that that particular fellowship program was much more evidence-based than some. Um, We did a lot of injections. However, we were also taught to look at the outcomes that we were trying to achieve. And as I sort of voiced, you know, voiced in previous episodes, I was not satisfied with the results we were getting in the military. Um, you know, we worked really hard, but, it, you know, there was some discontinuity there. There was, you know, people getting deployed here and there. It was very difficult to follow the same patient. And I really predicted that when I got out, and one of the reasons I went out of the military was so I could follow patients, do the procedures on them, follow them afterward. And that somehow I'd be this, you know, hot doctor and with my massive amount of ability and skill, uh, the outcomes would be different. And they weren't. And that really created a crisis of faith for me. And what I began to do is I started looking at the data on the treatment of pain and particularly the literature that is used, the research that is used. And one of the big problems that we have in medicine particularly with specialties. And specialties mean, you know, where the, the specialist physicians are things like a pain physician like me or a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist, somebody who looks at your belly, um, you know, rheumatologist. And what they do is we, we get tunnel vision and we're only focused on what's directly in front of us, what we're interested on, and what sort of research studies that the people at those big hospitals like Harvard or... Uh, University of California, Los Angeles, are producing, okay? And specifically, what are producing within our specialty? So you got a lot of people who already got these goggles on looking at research that has basically been created and propagated by people with their own goggles on, right? Not a lot of time are people looking outside of the box. And so what we have with pain is really about 20 years ago, there was this big push saying that chronic pain in particular was being undertreated. All right. And right or wrong, what that created was a massive push, a push to somehow eliminate pain, somehow to make this number, you know, disappear, somehow that we could eliminate pain without really recognizing or thinking about that by the definition of pain, by the definition of pain itself, it's an experience. It's not a thing that we can go out and crush or slay or destroy. All right. Pain requires a couple of different things. And we've talked about this in the Understanding Pain um, episodes, episodes 16 and 17, I do believe, where pain is, you know, a sensory emotional experience associated with tissue damage, blah, blah, blah. Saying that there is some sort of nerve fiber, there's a, this pain kind of generator coming from the body, but it requires a brain to process it. 
And that brain then takes that information from the body and uses things like your past experience, possible meaning to the pain, um, what you're learning, what you ex- what you really believe that 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 signal is telling you right then and there, the the uh, intensity as well as the meaning of pain. If you believe that it is a harmful, threatening thing, you process that signal differently. It becomes much more intense and it hurts more. And we have data to show this. But anyway, so trying to eliminate this thing with pain. And um, what subsequently happened was there was this rise in what, you know, pain fellowships, training of new doctors into this field, a newly emerging field of pain medicine. And interestingly, during the 1980s, there had been much more of a push towards what we call multidisciplinary care, meaning people realized that chronic pain back then was much more complex than just saying it was something as simple that you can poke with a needle or drug with a pill or cut out with a surgery, that there was something more to it. And there were more programs at that time that did things like integrate physical therapy or people to get people to move and teach them to move again, psychology to help them work on processing that pain, understanding what is uh, you know, a pain that is harmful versus a pain that is not, um, really understanding what the suffering is because pain and suffering are different in a lot of ways. And uh, what they discovered was they were having some breakthroughs with it, but it was also very expensive. It required a lot of resources and things. And with the way that medicine is reimbursed, as we know, it is reimbursed predominantly for doing things, doing things to people. That is one of the crises that we have where, you know, highly paid specialists get much more money for spending you know, seeing someone for five, six minutes and then scheduling from, for surgeries or injections or running in and out and just giving them a pill just so they can see, you know, whatever, five, 10, sometimes, you know, uh, 12, 15 patients in, a, in an hour. Now that's on an extreme and there's not a lot of people doing it, but it has been done. Um, so as we develop these fellowships, then these fellowships become much more involved in what we would call the interventional side, the needles and injections and things. All right. All right. The other part that began happening with this is with this push and this interest, there was these guidelines being developed. And you're all, you know, you're you're supposed to have some vetting when you have these academic figures that do these uh, you know, big reports and they all get together and they make these things and say to the best of our knowledge, this is uh what the evidence says to date. All right. And Disclosure is becoming much more of a, uh, a big deal um, over the last five to ten years. Um, but what we realized and what was published recently, in fact in June, was that the Institute of Medicine, one of the you know, high gurus of, of medical care that produce all these reports and things, uh, they re- produced a, um, a report in 2000 and, oh God, I think it was 11, about chronic pain. So this is already 20 years into... Uh, this so-called war on pain in a lot of ways. And the data up to that point had not shown improvement. In fact, outcomes are worse. We're spending much, much more money on the treatment of chronic pain, and people aren't getting better. If you look at the state of health in the United States, 1990, the top five causes of disability at that time were low back pain, chronic neck pain, musculoskeletal pain, anxiety, and depression. And if you looked at the follow-up study in 2010, what were the top five disablers in the United States? Well, it was back pain, neck pain, 
musculoskeletal pain, anxiety, and depression. And while a couple of those had moved in position, meaning some of them may no longer be number three and number four, the top one, back pain, remained the same. Virtually no change in 20 years, despite us spending billions, if not trillions of dollars in that time frame treating it. And uh, they're, they're not getting better. If it, we're, they're not being changed substantially. All right. Well, interestingly, this Institute of Medicine report, I've, I've had a beef with this for a while, and I've done some lectures to some physician groups as well as some um, you know, public groups. And they, they were widely reported that 100 million Americans lived with chronic pain in the United States. All right. Well, there's only 315 million people in the United States. And what this meant then, that for every three people, roughly one of them had chronic pain. Chronic pain, in this particular report, was saying so bad it required treatments and we were under-treating in a lot of ways. Now, interestingly, if you went back in time, there was a book published, I think, in 2000 by Scott Fishman, who's the chief of pain medicine at the University of California, Davis. And I think the title of that book was also The War on Pain. And the figure that he used at that time was that 45 million Americans were... Um, suffering from chronic pain, 45 million Americans, still a, a fairly large number. So from 2000 to 2011, though, you know, these academics produced from 45 million in 2000 to 100 million in 2011. And the population of the United States was 200 and something million in 2000, up to 312, 15 million in 2011. So the population of the United States increased by roughly 12 to 15 percent. And if I'm remembering correctly, because I'm kind of doing this off the top of my head, when you take 45 million and you increase it to 100 million, somehow then, if those numbers were correct, the uh, rate of chronic pain was now a 220% increase than it was 10 years previously. 220% increase while the population of the United States had only gained, I think, again, I think it was around 12% or something. Now, anyone who would be looking at those figures over that time frame would say something isn't right. Something isn't matching. Where are these numbers coming from? All right. Well, in June 20, 2014, said this is, uh, I'm going to put a link to this here from MedPage Today. It was found out that there were multiple members of this Institute of Medicine panel that had ties to the pharmaceutical industry. All right. This is not necessarily saying that they were good or that they were bad, but that's just they had ties to the pharmaceutical industry, that there were grants being given um, that were not reported. Right? And this is a bad thing. And we like to pretend that somehow we are not influenced by outside influences. And particularly as physicians, we like to say, oh, we're completely independent. doesn't matter what those drug uh, companies do, uh, even if they didn't give the money. I, they didn't give the money to me directly. Uh, sure, they may have given you know $3 million dollars to a grant for the medical school that I am either the chair of or a department head of, but that has no influence on me. That's a load of garbage, an absolute load of garbage, but because we know just from the way that marketing is performed, that influence, you know, if you give someone something, this is called reciprocity, and uh, there's an interest, an excellent book on, on influence and how you influence people and how sales works and marketing works, uh, and that's one of the, what they call the sixth, uh, rules of influence is reciprocity. And basically, it's kind of ingrained into our DNA practically. If I give you something, even if I you didn't really want it, 
there is a subconscious desire to repay that debt. All right. Um, this is one of the reasons if back in time the Harry Krishnas did so well when we were, you know, pushing flowers on people in the airports is because just by giving a simple flower, the person receiving that, that flower had a feeling of debt. And so to repay that debt, they had to give something back. Now, obviously, it's not 100 percent. Not everybody who got a flower from a Hare Krishna uh, gave them money back. But it's significant, pretty significant. And I'll link to that book, Influence. It's a very interesting read, read by Robert Cialadini. Uh, and it gives you a better perspective on kind of the nature and the way of things. And it's not, again, not a necessarily bad thing, but you need to be aware of it. So anyway, this panel then has ties to the pharmaceutical industry. And they're finally, finally saying there's something wrong with this 100 million people in, suffering from chronic pain. Okay. Now, interestingly, even the panelists, when they were called to task on this, say, well, if it's not 100 million, it's still a a large amount and it's such a big deal, blah, 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 blah. And I am not saying that chronic pain is not a big deal. Okay. Chronic pain is a, a big deal, but it's really what we're talking about is chronic suffering. All right. And what we know and understand, because the data is there, if you look for it, you have to look beyond the interventional literature. You Again, from the needle people, the people who were me, I was one of them pushing these needles on people all the time tells and tells you that chronic pain in particular is much more of a central process. There's much more going on in the brain than anything else. All right. And when we try to think that we're going to fix it quickly, if, in fact, a physician is going to fix, fix it at all rather than a lot of it coming from the patient themselves and not an easy process, but through rehab, through movement, through diet, through the way they actually cope with the nature of stress, changing and understanding the meaning of that 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 uncomfortable feeling that painful feeling they're not going to get better and in fact what we may be doing is is you know promoting this idea that we can you know do the simple easy treatment with a needle or a pill that we're giving people harmful beliefs and i think i have uh, connected to that in a previous episode but i will do it for this one as well all right so that's just with the number of chronic pain and the ties there well, there was another interesting study that just came out on epidural steroid injections. This is sort of the bread and butter of the pain world. And there is a ton of misinformation regarding epidural steroid injections. Now, we're not talking about epidurals for labor, epidurals for pregnancy, epidurals that are used for surgery. That is a much different situation. Surgery and pregnancy, those are what we call acute pain. There's some active ongoing process happening in the body right now. And if we can block that signal coming from the body, we can change that pain experience somewhat. There is still a large component that comes from the brain. The brain still has a large uh, role with it. But if we can block that signal, you know, numb it up temporarily, it's good for surgery, good for having babies. You know, that's what it's good for. But epidural steroid injections for chronic pain, okay, pain that has been there over three months, uh, in, in a lot of cases, have been there for years and years and years. Uh, epidural steroid injections, first of all, for back pain alone, just pain that is localized in the back, not going down the leg, has no evidence saying that it works. Okay. Another common symptom saying, or I should say, not no evidence that says it works, no good evidence, because there are some garbage studies out there widely promoted uh, by people who have an interest, you know, people like some of the specialty societies of which I was a member in because it, it was a livelihood is where we get our money from 
And they said, you know, we're doing these these kind of by a small number of patient studies, and look, they seem to get better. Oh, by the way, we don't have any long-term fire, uh, follow-up, so we're just sort of extrapolating some information out from about a two- to three-month follow-up period. Anyway, so for epidural steroid injections, this new study that just came out in the New England Journal of Medicine on July 3rd, 2014, was for the treatment of spinal stenosis. Now, what spinal stenosis is, is a condition where um, over time, the, you know, there's a, you have a spinal canal where your spinal cord goes through, and the spinal cord actually stops kind of in the mid-range of your back, does not go all the way down into your butt, but the nerves kind of dangle down there little teeny nerves and they dangle in that spinal column they go down and then they kind of exit out these little these little tunnels and they go into your legs and they go down into uh, your knees and hips and things like that to provide basically movement and sensation so you can walk and things like that and what spinal stenosis is is just our big fancy medical way of saying constriction stenosis means that it is getting squeezed and if you kind of imagine your spinal canal that area where those spinal nerves are dangling in fluid, you can kind of picture it as like a pipe, like your your kitchen pipe, like your uh, like your sink. All right, and there's a pump going down with water, or there's a pipe going down that's generally open, and we can fill that pipe full of water, uh, and have dangle little nerves in it. Right. Well, over time, as we get older, the ligaments and tissues in your back can start to thicken. All right, you get kind of get thickened. They get uh, the ligaments kind of get bigger. Um, sometimes the bones themselves can we can we can uh, uh, put some wear and tear on them, and so as those wear and tear, we put some bony de- deposit down, like a like a crust on them. So if you imagine this as a sink, imagine that you're starting to get grime and goo that's all caked on all the walls, and that sink then that pipe starts to close off and become constricted. Okay, that's what spinal stenosis is. Now, interestingly. Um, People can run around with horrible spinal stenosis and never even realize it, not have any symptoms at all. Uh, and I've seen this more than once. And this is, I think I talked about the dangers of getting MRIs and things, is remember those pictures on an MRI do not tell you pain. They only tell you structure. But because of we've had all this imaging, we're diagnosing more and more of the stenosis, um, and oftentimes not even that severe, but we'll tell people that because of this this constriction that somehow that's the cause of their back pain. Spinal stenosis doesn't necessarily cause back pain either. It causes more of an ache, deep ache in the legs themselves. But anyway, we'll tell people it causes back pain. So people have been getting injections for spinal stenosis very, very commonly, particularly in older people over the age of 65. Uh, They will sometimes tell you that you need a series of three. That's another bit of garbage. There is no such thing as a series of three. That's a made up number. You certainly don't need an uh, epidural every two weeks, uh, and you certainly don't need three a year, and you certainly don't need one every six months or whatever other thing that people are telling each other. But this particular study compared these epidural steroid injections to injections where they just received a um, local anesthetic, lidocaine, a numbing medication in there. And you don't want to put too much when you put it in the epidural space, because if you do, you can numb them up so they can't feel their legs like we do when people are having a baby. But there's this idea that if we put just a little bit of lidocaine in there, somehow this would help them and make them feel better. Now, if you look at steroids, so steroids uh, work on a different level than a numbing medication. A numbing medication is temporary. They last anywhere from minutes to hours. 
uh, certainly not days. They don't last for days because of the way, uh, which I'm not going to get into this episode, but the way they actually work on the cell receptors. Now, steroids do something different. They have an anti-inflammatory effect, and they actually kind of induce genes. They cause this, a longer-term change. But even steroids alone from a single dose will only last days, certainly a week at the most. Okay. But we have, again, we have a belief that if we give these steroids that people are somehow are going to get months and months and months in duration, and it's going to be from the steroids alone. So they randomized these patients in the study. One group got steroids. The other group got um, uh, just the local anesthetic. One group got both. And at the end of six weeks, six weeks here, all right, that's only less than a month and a half. We're not talking months at all. We're not talking years, but six weeks. There was no significant group differences, meaning the people who had the steroid versus the people who had the numbing medicine had the same effect. Okay. Now, this is not necessarily a new finding because if you looked at the um, some of the long other studies where they've been big data analysis, again, trying to look at real data, uh, there have been no good information saying that these epidural steroid injections are providing long-term benefit despite us spending billions of dollars on them a year. Now, I remember first hearing about this in 2009 when I was at a conference, and there was a big hue and cry because at that point in time, the American College of Physicians, American Pain Society guidelines were coming out saying that most of these interventions, most of these injections weren't working. And everybody say, well, they're wrong in my patients, and you know, I've seen people, and they're magically better, and it's, it's all wrong and all wrong. And this is because we're, you know, we're biased. We're obviously biased. We're focused on things in a way that is, we're not looking at it objectively anymore because it's very difficult when you've spent this time, you've spent this training to discover that if you actually look objectively at the data, you're not helping people, All right? 2009, as I said, I said, I heard this. I was one of, I, I definitely agreed at the time. I was a, a hue and crier, and I'm like, well, this is wrong, and this people have an agenda against us, and uh, stuck with that for a number of years until, again, I got out of the military and started following my patients on my own and was impressed, or I should say shocked, that they didn't necessarily get better. And even with stricter criteria, uh, which few people do, by the way, but very, very strict criteria on who is getting these injections, the outcomes didn't seem to be greatly improved. People either got better or they didn't, and a lot of it seemed to do with the relationship they had with me, whether it was a very good one, and the belief that they had, the belief that this was going to have a profound effect on them. Now, I've talked a little bit about belief in the past, and expectation and belief, positive belief of therapy, is a very powerful has a very, very powerful role in health and healing. Uh, it mitigates or changes the stress response in our body, can decrease inflammation, and the stress, as we talked about in previous episodes, has a multiple of different effects on us. It's sort of like the way that, th that the outside, you know, life affects us. It could cause, you know, inflammation in our heart. It can cause problems with our bowels. It definitely causes things, uh, worsens depression and anxiety, makes you feel sick, makes you feel tired, makes you not want to get out of bed in the morning. Um, and, and we can see this now. We can actually see these these uh, endocrine responses we have in the body due to stress alone. But anyway, when you have a belief, when you have a belief that a therapy is going to work, that changes the way that our body processes the stress response. Okay, it drops that that uh, that in inflammation. It changes the way 
um, that these hormones are being expressed and cortisol, that stress hormone goes down and all sorts of things. So beliefs are extraordinarily powerful. And I don't have a problem with belief as long as the belief itself is not being supported or changed or uh, or worsened uh, by something else. And so when we create a belief in somebody that an injection that if you look objectively, if you look at the actual data that has now been published, and it's not just this one study in the New England Journal of Medicine, it's been multiple, multiple, multiple studies over at least the last decade, 10 years, decade here, that have said that these injections have not proven to be substantial. But we foster this belief, and we have a large number of physicians. And again, I'm not saying that they're bad. I think some people, when you're challenging a belief, if I'm challenging your beliefs right now, maybe, maybe some of you have had these injections and you're going, Dr. Kukaro, you're nuts. Challenging beliefs is very difficult. And when we have a belief that is so ingrained in us, it becomes very, very difficult to see around it. And as a physician, I will tell you, particularly if you have hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, if you have a house and a mortgage and things, um, and you've been trained in a lot of ways to do these things by big name institutions and all the people that are supposed to be telling you that this stuff works and then someone says it doesn't you're not you don't want to believe them it threatens really kind of your core being all right so just trying to say there i don't think the physicians doing these things are necessarily bad people there are some that are but i would say most aren't i just i just think that there's a belief there that they can't wrap their head around because in a lot of ways it threatens their well-being because if they understood this if they looked objectively at the data, they looked at what we were doing to patients while we're saying, hey, you know, you need this injection every six months. And magically, that patient seems to come back every six months because their pain returns every six months. It probably has a lot more to do with the, with the beliefs that we're instilling in them, that they have a trusting relationship with us. They trust us to give them the right information. They believe that we're not trying to harm them, which most of us aren't. And they believe us. And that belief then changes their bodies, changes almost reality in a lot of ways, and that pain will return. Now, I have seen this before in multiple different fashions. All right. I've seen it where I told somebody exactly that. I did an injection on them and said, well, that should have lasted at least six months, almost six months to the day later. He showed up in my office and I said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, the pain's back and you said it was only going to last six, six months. I, now, I, I, was, I was smacking myself. Uh, for saying that um, because that was harmful of me. I've seen people have injections in their back, uh, you know, and this is, for, again, from personal uh, uh, experience here, that when I did epidurals, I didn't put any of the numbing medication within the epidural space because uh, there's some data that says that all that does is cause um, uh, problems. There's, you know, more of a risk of something happening when you do that than not. Uh, and again, because it is a just a numbing medication, there's no long-term effect with it. And since we were supposed to be doing these for chronic pain, long-duration pain, I didn't put it in there. It didn't make sense. Why would I put something in there that increases the risk of something bad happening that doesn't physiologically or pharmacologically have any role in long-term chronic pain management? So I would just put steroid in, steroid in basically fluid, like a water-based fluid or uh, normal saline as we use it. And steroid takes time to work it does not happen right then it takes anywhere from four to six hours because of the way that that particular sometimes a little bit faster but certainly not within minutes all right and i've seen and i did injections 
I would do these injections steroid only with just the saline, which is has no active properties at all, and people would jump off the table literally as soon as I did them and say, man, my back feels great. That was a little shocking to me. Uh, again, when, you know, when you're talking, when you have this strong belief role in this particular therapy, uh, but now it makes sense. Is a lot of ways I'm, we're telling people they have an expectation of getting better. They feel like it's going to get better, and they did. All right, the brain is a powerful thing. Beliefs are a powerful thing. If you believe something is going to help you, honestly believe that you is going to help you, and if you have someone doing that to you, if you have a doctor that's facilitating that who believes it's going to help you, that relationship by itself becomes extraordinarily powerful and can generate things, but it it should generate improvement, make you feel better, make you feel like you have gotten well. The problem though being is we have fostered then a belief that somehow it was the injection rather than the belief that got people well, and then we know injections wear off and that they need repeat ones. And so we're, instead of patients being empowered to take control of the health and recognizing that their belief, their mindset, the way they take control of their own health and wellness can influence and make them feel better, they get into a role where they feel trapped or they feel they need to have these injections, that they need to have this performed to them, right? And that's wrong. It's, that, is, that is truly wrong. We're not supposed to be hurting people, and we are. So... This is sort of a long way or a long kind of episode. I hope it sort of makes sense to you. But I, I had to talk about it because, again, these studies are coming out. And I guess in some ways um, what I get upset with is I still have, I get emails from some of these specialty societies, particularly the pain specialty societies. And one of them in particular, uh, I can't even begin to say that they're unbiased. They're they're absolutely biased. The information that they, they push forward is driven really um, from from their own vested interest, uh, and it's ridiculous. Uh, and when this New England Journal of Medicine um, article came out, and a little background on the New England Journal of Medicine, it is one of the most prestigious medical journals. Now, there's problems with medical journals, uh, which I think I've touched on in the past with publication bias and things, um, but honestly, New England Journal of Medicine is well known as to be one of the better ones. They're not perfect, but one of the better ones. Better research, um, it is much stricter criteria to get an article published in there. They have large editorial staffs of physicians overlooking these things. Uh, they have statisticians, um, the people who look like the statistics and can tell whether there's the right number of patients or not. It's a very confusing science in a lot of ways. Those statisticians are kind of like uh, future, you know, fortune tellers in a lot of ways, except they get it right. Um, but the New England Journal of Medicine, again, is one of the most prestigious medical journals there is in the world in this particular pain society who I won't named uh, sent a email (laughs) to all of their people on their email list about how the design was flawed how the authors failed to respond how the New England Journal of Medicine is obviously biased because they would not publish this particular specialty society's uh, information saying you are wrong and our injections work every time and they're fantastic um and it was just unbelievable to me that despite the, the, when, you, when people can be so closed-minded and so interested only in their own self-interest that they won't even take a minute to say, you know what, maybe we need to step back and look at what we're doing 
and who we may be harming doing this. So, I'm not trying to rant here. But people need to be aware. Chronic pain is not treated with a simple injection. We know this. We have 20, 30 years of good data that says injections by themselves don't work. That when we encourage people and, and promise them that somehow these injections are going to be the answer to their prayers, we're not helping them. Now, someone out there may be saying, well, I'm getting these injections and they keep me around. They keep me moving for another three to six months. And if I didn't have them, I wouldn't be able to work. I wouldn't be able to play with my kids. I wouldn't be able to play with my grandkids. And what I am telling you is that is not true. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're responding to these injections that well, think of how well you would do if you had a belief in yourself, that you had a belief in understanding how to you know, move, that you had a belief that you could exercise, that when you had pain at that time, that maybe it's a soreness, uh, that really that these, these MRIs that we're giving that telling people that they have just degenerative disc disease is not a disease at all. If we could get rid of those beliefs and tell you, you know what, you're going to have back pain. You're going to have a flare of back pain here and there. But if you understand it's just a flare, it may be a muscle spasm, whatever, but it'll get better over time. You, don't need, you won't need the injections anymore. And this is speaking from somebody who has had back pain, acute episodes multiple times throughout my life. Uh, and is also is a trained in the specialty as well. I will not have an MRI of my back. Uh, I do not want to know what is in the back in my back unless I'm in danger of having an infection or some cancerous mass or something like that. And uh, as I've talked about in other episodes, I we know those because bad things surface in profound ways. But I will not have an MRI of my back. Um, I do not want to know what is back there. If you do know what's back there, someone did do an MRI. I want you to sort of erase it out of your mind. And just realize if you don't have cancer, if you don't have what we call instability, meaning the bones are not moving uh, profoundly on top of each other, like sliding back and forth, in which case you'd be pooing or peeing on, peeing on yourself and unable to move your, your legs and be paralyzed and things like that, then the information doesn't really tell you much of anything other than there's some structures back there. But it certainly doesn't tell you that's pain. Now, I can do more episodes on this. Uh, I, I don't want to be ranting. I don't know if you guys are interested in this, but this is something I, I am truly profoundly passionate about um, because I, feel, I guess I have some guilt with it as well. You know, having, having practiced, having uh, in many ways, I, I'm, I'm scared that I may have fostered these beliefs in people before I knew any better. Um, and and I, I just want people to realize that health is something that is an individual can control it is your not, not I don't want to say right but it is you can do this okay you can take control of your health 
You do not need a doctor's permission in any way. Doctors are great for things like pneumonia. Um, we're decent with things like cancer. If you are having a heart attack, absolutely, we can try to help you. We can put in stents and things like that. But when it comes to chronic conditions, to support a belief that we are somehow helping you rather than you are helping yourselves and we are there to assist you to help yourself is frankly wrong. And with that, I'm going to end this much longer episode than I anticipated. And until next time, folks, stay well.